And so if you want to hear the other two testimonies, please go online on our YouTube page and you can hear the other two. What a blessing to have them. Uh, you know, I want to add something um, and, and also kind of uh, like make a further announcement. As Clyde talked about, next weekend is our anniversary weekend festival on Saturday. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and anniversary service with Jeremy Treat. I'm looking just, uh, that's an immense privilege for us to have uh, been able to book him. But, uh, you know, oftentimes as a church, and, and we're so grateful f for all the things that God has done at Living Hope, and there's been a temptation at moments to say, wow, look, we've arrived, um, and be grateful for air conditioning, comfy seats, a cool patio, um, a children's space, and things of that nature, and at a time like an anniversary service, we can think about all the ways that we're being blessed. And so what we're going to do this year is to take a moment uh, at the anniversary weekend to think about how we can uh, do something significant that doesn't bring blessing to our community, but to another. Uh, as you know, we have a church in Honduras, in Central America, in the city of La Paz. And let me tell you why that particular church is important to us. Uh, it was planted or founded in 2018 of January. I was there along with David Park for the, the dedication, along with James Ma um, for the dedication. Uh, we uh, raised the funds to build a building, actually. We, uh, our members, sponsor through Compassion International almost 250 children who come to the Compassion program at that church. And uh, every year we send a team, either a medical or a VBS team, to work with the kids. And I remember one of the stories that I heard, uh, one of our youth kids was there last year, or this year, and uh, she got a chance to visit her sponsor child when and she walked into their humble home uh, what she was to what she was surprised by was to see a picture of her family the sponsoring family in the sponsor child's home and the child said that we pray for you you uh, your family every day um, and this is the kind of relationship we have with this particular church. It is like a daughter church to us. And when I remember when I was there for the dedication, they, they remember Living Hope and they thank us. I think they think of us far more than we think of them. So for our 26th anniversary, there are two needs that I want us to, to bring up and say, if you're grateful for all that God is doing, uh, perhaps you can think about meeting one of these two needs. Uh, the first is this, uh, that they originally built a building uh, with the thought of possibly in the future building out a second floor with three classrooms. And I'm, I know that when our uh, youth kids went there for VBS, it was completely packed. There was just not enough room, and they were having some of the lessons outside and such. Um, they want to finish out this project. Um, the overall cost is like $55,000. We actually need only uh, 13 more thousand dollars to to bring that uh, money up. Um, and so we'd like to take a, a missions offering next uh, Sunday. I want you to give your tithing as usual, but also uh, in addition to that, give a, a, a special offering for this project. Um, and that should allow uh, that church to, to facilitate ministry to like 264 kids. 
The second thing that I would like for us to do is uh, that they started a program for infants. And Compassion has this infant uh, mom and infant program, and they just started it. They have nine babies, I th and, and they may have more now, who need sponsoring. And right out in the hall, uh, there are pictures of nine babies and the moms. And so if you do not have a sponsor child, I would, I would ask you to consider maybe sponsoring one of those children. The pictures and, and bios are out in the main hall, but the day that you can actually do the sponsorship is next Sunday. So if you're worried, if you pick out a child and you're worried that that child is going to get taken by someone else, well, come early, right? Um, and and I, I want us to be able to say we sponsor all the nine kids. Um, and I can tell you how meaningful that is. Uh, to that church over there. So in celebration and in gratitude of our 26th anniversary, I am uh, uh, saying to us collectively, let's celebrate by sacrificing in a way that doesn't benefit us, but for the kingdom um, uh, to our daughter church out in, in La Paz, Honduras. Amen? All right, thank you. Um, you know, I, these last five weeks, we've been in real conversations, and it's been a blessing for me I've just tremendously have been blessed by all of the, the stories and the messages. I, I still can remember Aveline's or Joy's or Heidi's testimonies. What a blessed time that was. Uh, we're going to switch gears, and I'm going to uh, get us back in track in the book that we've been on in the year, and that's the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 are, are deep um, theological chapters which told us about the love of God. Uh, some of the uh, theological concepts we have been taught is, first of all, depravity. That all of us, every single one of us, are guilty and deserving of God's wrath, whether it's through uh, immorality or idolatry or through religion that is self-motivated, uh, that we are uh, as Romans 3, 10 and 11 say, uh, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. And so 3.23, for all live sin and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, the worst news is not only are, have we broken bad, but we can't recover on our own. The second theological concept is justification. 3.24 says we're justified um, by His grace as a gift, that Christians, uh, at the moment of salvation, are instantaneously and irreversibly declared not liable for condemnation. We are forgiven. The third theological concept is a, it's a term that almost only Christians kind of use as propitiation. Uh, the, the verse continues in 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus uh, in verse 25, it's through the blood of Jesus that is propitiation. It means that Jesus paid it all. All to him I own. Uh, oh, sin has left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. The fourth theological concept is sovereignty. Uh, in chapter 8, we are told that uh, in this majestic verse, all things work together for good, that for the Christian, for those who love God, that God is fully in control. And the final theological concept, and this isn't exhaustive, but uh, the one that I want to bring up is that of security. 
And as he finishes chapter 8, he says um, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He reminds us that no matter what, as a child of God, as a son of God, a daughter of God, as a bride of Christ, that God will not give up on you or me. What wonderful truth. He spent um, 11 chapters, 11 chapters theologically deep, uh, reminding the church this uh, undeserved love that we have received. Now we get to chapter 12. After having said all of that, he says, therefore, therefore. And he, I, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore. And he says it in a pastoral way, appeal. Hey, men, hey, men, women, listen to me. I care about you. He does it also prophetically with authority. I, I, you need to do this. He tells us, um, and this is almost like a, a summary statement of what is to come, chapters 12 through 16, that if you really believe, and if this is true of you, that you are no longer a slave, but you're a son, you're a daughter of, of Christ, if you have been justified, you've been redeemed, you, um, you, you've been saved, that you have put on a new self, if this is true of you, this should be the natural response. And he says two things, that you give your body, and you change your mind. That you present your bodies and you transform your mind. Let's talk about the first thing. Chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. You know, when... Uh, you think about the term worship, what do you think about? Uh, in the Christian kind of subculture, when we use the term worship, we think about a particular time of the day, normally on Sunday. When do you worship? Well, uh, Living Hope worships at uh, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.30 on Sunday. What happens Friday night with uh, youth and, and, and college? We're not sure what that is, but... Real worship is on Sunday, we believe. We designate a certain time of the week as when we gather and there's word being preached and music, that is worship. Uh, we sometimes even go, even um, a subculture uh, underneath that, in that, we have a whole list of people who are the uh, part of the worship team. And Robbie is the worship leader. And, and, and Ben helps him with that. And so uh, there are, uh, when we gather together as a group of Christians and there's melody and music with instruments, we think, well, that's worship. So when we hear chapter 12, verse 1, if you do this, this is worship. We're kind of thinking, does this have something to do with what we do in this room on Sunday? But listen. When this letter was originally read, this is how things normally happen. Paul, the apostle, the church planner, such as he had authority, he, he penned a letter which was written in a scroll, hand-delivered to a church, and the congregation was, um, was together, and a representative, a leader of the church, would unfold the, the scroll and would read, listen, listen, we have a letter from Paul. 
and he's read through all 11 chapters, and I believe during the time those that were slaves were, were taught that they're no, uh, no longer slaves but were free. Those who, who don't have parents are told uh, that, that they've been adopted as sons and, and daughters. Those that have a, a, a sordid background have been told that they're justified. They're just weeping at gratitude. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, yes, I urge you, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, yes, not because of how good we are, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a living thusia, holy and acceptable to God. We, all of us have heard this verse. I don't think when we hear it, it has the emotional impact that it did on the first uh, generation of listeners. And the reason being is this, we have, I don't think any of us in this room have ever actually experienced Thusia in the way that the first century Christians did or the Jews did. Because you and I have never actually participated, smelled, saw, have seen, or touched a sacrifice. Let me explain. If you were a Jewish um, a Jew who grew up in that era, and even um, non-Jews in their own religion, um, they would have been familiar with a passage like Leviticus chapter 1, which talks about a burnt offering. You would have grown up with perhaps animals, and they, they are your commodities, they're your asset, that's, that's what you own. And as, as you grow up with your animals, whether it be goats or sheep or bulls and uh, you know, you had your favorite because this is the prettiest, this is the healthiest, this is the, uh, the most affectionate. But on special holy days, your dad would pick out not the main one, not the one who had the open sore, but a male, the cleanest, the most perfect one. And he would explain to you, we had to take this animal uh, above the others because God deserves our best. And you would make a trip to Jerusalem where a lot of others are gathering and your dad would, would take this animal to the priest and, and they would have a conversation and the animal that you raised, you fed, was handed over to the priest and that priest would, would slay the, that animal, bleed it out, uh, would uh, skin it, chop it up and put it on the altar and as you see from afar, uh, there would be a billowing of smoke. That was a sacrifice. So when the first century readers or hearers heard chapter 12, verse 1 for the first time, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, I believe that the first readers uh, would have been stunned a bit. What is Paul actually saying to us? What would he have understood chapter 12, verse 1 as? I think he would have, first of all, understood it as um, a requirement, a mandate to give our best. 
You see, in Leviticus chapter 1, when, um, when the instructions were given to how a burnt offering is to be chosen, it says, um, verse 2 of Leviticus 1, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of, of you brings an animal offer." brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Leviticus 22 specifies he can't be blind, fractured, maimed, nor have any running sores, eczema, or scab, meaning he was to take the best of what he had. See, in this particular era, um, their value, their wealth uh, wasn't always um, counted by what you have in your portfolio or your um, property, but oftentimes for many people, their, uh, their wealth is measured by how many animals they had. And so when the instruction was to bring a male goat or a lamb or a bull that is without blemish, how they would have understood it as is bring the best of what you own. You know, um, we don't come on a Sunday morning, the kids, come on, we're going to go to church, prepare your offering. I'm going to prepare a bull. Uh, KKC kids, bring your pigeon. We don't do things like that, right? And so when we are told to bring uh, it without blemish, we don't think about, well, I'm going to uh, do a, a, an offering with a check or an automatic payment through Breeze. By the way, I highly recommend that it helps our treasurers and such, right? I'm um, not kidding. Yeah, yeah, it really immensely is helpful for them. Um, but we don't specify or think, you know, I'm going to give the best of my tithe without blemish. But the first generation, first century uh, readers would have thought that way. And to be told that we are to give our bodies as a holy living sacrifice, no, it means then to give the best of who I am. Because I've received this undeserved love from God, yeah, I, I should respond not by giving my second or the last, but my best of who I am. You know, yesterday, uh, a lot of you know this, but two of our primers, meaning two of our single adults, were recategorized as home builders, meaning they got married here in this room. And it was a, it was a wonderful wedding. Um, uh, they, they stood up here, Pastor Ben Tabal gave the message and ended the ring, made them kiss and things of that nature. Uh, I love the part where Pastor Ben uh, talked about the ring, how if you've been married a long time, the outside of the ring gets all nicked up while the inside of the ring is still polished and smooth. That was a great illustration how life is difficult, but you, just, you, know, you hold, hold together in that way. Um, and so they were doing the, the exchanging of rings. But you know, I, I would imagine that if the, um, when the young man uh, was thinking about get, proposing to his girlfriend, at the time, he didn't go to Tiffany's and say, and, and say you know, um, I, I would like to buy an engagement ring. Um, just give me anything, you know, you have. Um, and if the, the, the salesperson at Tiffany says, you know, you're here at a perfect time. You're shopping for an engagement ring. You're here at a perfect time because we have a BOGO sale <laughs> on engagement rings. BOGO, buy one, get one, free. Right, uh, And so you can, uh, for the price of one, you can 
get engaged to two different girls. <laughs> if you're like, what a deal, right? And, and the young man was like, yeah, that's a great deal. Give me, uh, instead of a one-carat diamond, give me two half-carat diamonds. Well, you know, I, I, I want to kind of make it unique, so have, give me one with this cut and this with a different cut, this color, etc. And then he brings home two engagement rings. Mm, which one should I propose with or give to my uh, love? You know, I can use the other one as an investment or give it to mom or maybe my coworker. Right? By the way, this is a terrible idea, just in case some of you are thinking, <laughs> right? If you are in love and you are committing to love, you know, that's, it's both, right, a wedding, you want to give the best of what you can possibly offer. Do you not? You don't give the second best or the last best. You, you give of your whole self and say, and I pledge my ring. And it represents the kind of commitment that you are trying to make because of the love relationship that you uh, have and are hoping for. And when we come before God, and he says, if you've received this undeserved love, if you really understand the gospel, what you should be coming to is not giving your last best or second best, but your best. The first generation of uh, Christians also would have understood it's not only giving your best, but it's giving sacrificially. In Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, it says, He, the priest, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. He uh, shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, uh, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. What do they do with the bull? They killed it, bled it out, skinned it, cut it into pieces. You know, it is interesting that the English word sacrifice can mean uh, a, a religious practice of worship, or it could also mean actually uh, sacrificing something. Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, and I believe the original listeners would have heard it and would have uh, imagined, is Paul telling us to climb upon the altar and light ourselves on fire as a, a, a human sacrifice? I think that's the initial shocking, uncomfortable image that would have come to their heads. And, and of course, that's not what Paul meant or means but I think the first generation readers would have understood that this means that it requires a sacrifice. A sacrifice requires a sacrifice. It has to hurt a bit. You know, the problem with the Western church, which all of us are a part of, is that we are a, a very um, individualistic, pragmar uh, pragmatic group. And even the way that we approach church, we do it that way. We come to church and on Sundays, we are hoping that there will be uh, some sort of a motivating, humorous, uh, maybe moving talk by the 
pastor it, and if it's really good, uh, when the offering back comes around, you know, I'll give a little extra. If not, I'll withhold. And if after weeks, week after week, if it's not that entertaining, I'm going to find a different movie theater or theater to go to. And if that doesn't cut it, I'm going to go to the Netflix of churches and just uh, live stream something while I'm doing something else. I think the first generation of Christians would have understood that worship essentially requires a sacrifice. It has to hurt. We have to give a, a part of ourselves for it. And you would have understood that it's not only giving our best, not only it has to hurt a, a bit, but there's a third element. That, um, and in chapter 1, verse 9 of Leviticus, it says, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I want you to understand what is happening. They brought all of the animals, all the people, the best of what they had. It was a sacrifice on the, the part of the giver. And they slew the animals, they cut it up, they, you know, and they burnt. And by the way, it is not smoking, it is not grilling, it's not barbecuing. It is burning up in flame. This, the gift that was given. Um, you know, next Sunday is our anniversary service, and um, what if we would have uh, we announced a BYO, not B, BYOM, bring your own meat Sunday. All right? Hey, in gratitude to the Lord, I want you, uh, you know, living hope, bring your BYOM. And there will be some people say, I'm going to bring sirloin, a tri-tip here, um, T-bone over there, um, uh, in college group is like, mm, I'm going to bring chicken tenders. Does that count? The pescatarians with me, I'm going to bring fish. Uh, the, the vegans here, can the tofu count, you know. And I'm going to tell the, and, and, I'm in, and many of you know me, I am an intensely practical person. If it doesn't serve a purpose, I'm not sure why it exists type of thing, right? I'm going to, if, if we're going to have a BYOM Sunday, I'm going to call up our hospitality team, uh, Paul, Yoon, Doris, and, and David, and Cheryl, and say, hey, next Sunday, we're going to have hundreds of pounds of meat here. What can we do? Right? And go, oh, oh, I'm gonna, they're going to bring the you know, people together early. They're going to uh, prepare marinades. They're going to have all the grills. And Sunday, we're just going to have an all-you-can meat fest. And we're going to celebrate our 26th anniversary. That's what I probably would do. But do you, do you know what they did? People brought the meat, chopped it up, and they burnt it up. They just torched it. And people stood around it and watched it go to waste. We would be appalled at that. We would have said, why, doesn't, why don't we give that to the poor if it's not going to feed us even? And he reminds us that worship isn't for our benefit. Worship primarily, the first purpose is so that it would be a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. 
And, and listen, Living Hope, there are times that what we do as Christians, whether it be passing out a bulletin, directing parking, serving coffee, leading, um, you know, playing the drums, uh, singing, praying, teaching. There are times we do those things not because it benefits others or me, but simply because it honors God. Uh, a fictitious story is told of Jesus and his uh, two disciples, John and Peter. He, he gets up in the morning, John, Peter, time for a walk. We're going to go on a walk. I want each of, you, each of you to bring a rock with you. And so John goes and, and finds a, a good size rock, a size of a cantaloupe, and um, he, he puts it in a sack and he brings it with him. And Peter goes around and he picks up a tiny little a pebble the size of a marble, and yeah, yeah, this kind of technically qualifies as a rock, doesn't it? It's, you know. So he puts that in his pocket and got my rock. And, and, and Jesus uh, takes John and Peter on a walk and into the wilderness. It's a hot day, and um, in the middle of the day, he said, uh, Men, bring out your rock. And so John brings, up, uh, brings out his cantaloupe sized rock, and Peter brings out his. Um, a, a great size pebble, and, and Jesus touches both of the rocks and, and turns them into bread. Men, that's your lunch. And um, no sharing. Um, and John's going, hey, that's good. That's, not, that's the best bread I've ever eaten in my life. And, and Peter puts this one little uh, thing in his mouth and like, man, I'm more hungry now than before. Is disgruntled all day, goes home. Next morning, Jesus wakes both men up. Uh, men, time for another walk. Uh, both of you bring a rock. So John goes out and finds another uh, rock about the size of a cantaloupe and puts it in his sack. Uh, Peter goes out and finds the biggest thing that he can lift, <laughs> right? And he has to tie a rope around it and make a makeshift backpack and... He's just like, he's walking, and all day he's thinking of, oh, I can't wait. Because last night, I got a taste of that manna. Oh, boy, it was so good, right? He's just dreaming all day. You know, have you ever, like, had those days? Like, you're just like, oh. Middle of the day, finally, they, um, they stop by a creek. And Jesus, uh, men, it's time. Yes. Uh, bring out your rock. They bring out their rock. Uh, I want you to throw it in the river. And so they throw uh, their rocks in the river. Peter, now, at this moment in time, is just kind of upset, really unhappy. Um, and Peter turns to Jesus, Jesus, uh, and I carried this rock for you all day. All day I've been straining and, and, and um, working hard I'm carrying this burden for you all day, but you just had me throw it in the river. Why? To which Jesus turns to Peter and says, well, Peter, did you actually carry that rock for me or for you? Now, oftentimes, I think the reason why we do what we do, even in the name of Christ, is not for Jesus, but for our sake. And so we get so disgruntled when it doesn't satisfy, when people don't thank us, 
when it doesn't benefit our kids and the such. Worship requires for us to do things that oftentimes just honors God, and that's it. That is spiritual worship. How do we respond to the undeserved love of God? We respond with giving the best of who we are sacrificially, ultimately to the glory of God. He says, give your bodies. And then he says, and this is a, uh, it goes really hand in hand, transform your mind, which is God's will. Transform your mind, which is God's will. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says uh, in a negative way, don't be conformed to this world. Uh, Don't take on the form of what the subculture is, its value system, its attitudes, and its affections. Because this is what we, even Christians, do. We conform to uh, the culture. But be transformed by, and the Greek word that is used is metamorphosis. Be transformed. It's a word that we use to describe what happens to a caterpillar um, that becomes a butterfly. You know, I, I've known about how caterpillars turn into butterflies a long time, um, but I really didn't know what happens on the inside. So caterpillars, and you know, they, they're, they're, you know it's, it's weird because we, we revolt, we have a, we don't like caterpillars at all, do we? It's just gross. And they, they attach themselves onto a twig, they create a cocoon, and out comes a butterfly, and, and we think it's wonderful. I, don't really, I never really understood what happens on the inside. I just kind of assumed that the caterpillar goes into a deep, like a diet, and then and he springs wings or something like that. Uh, the only information that I had of this process is uh, the book uh, Hungry, Hungry Caterpillar, or Bug's Life or something, right? Um, but the last couple of weeks, I kind of actually did research on this metamorphosis process, and what I found is fascinating. So when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, um, he, uh, there's, a, there's these enzymes that, that come into play, and what these, this enzyme, these enzymes do is it starts breaking down the cells of the caterpillar. So the form of the caterpillar is swallowed up in this goo. And so if during the process you cut open a cocoon, you won't find this form of a caterpillar anymore. You find this goo. And from within the goo, there are these things that starts to form legs and antennas and wings. It is a change that occurs from the inside out. It's almost like a death of a caterpillar and the whole complete birth of a butterfly. The problem that even Christians have is that we do not like to die to ourselves. We just want to learn how to fly as a caterpillar. I don't want to be goo. I want to stay who I am, but still pretend like I can fly. And that is why it is so hard to be a Christian at times. It gets so tiring. He says, no, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may prove and it, it, uh, what is uh, good and acceptable, the will of God, by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't simply mean to have more knowledge, but have a knowledge, be immersed in knowledge in such a way that proves the will of God, that, that what you know after a while, that you live it out, you believe in it, you trust in it to the point where it, it's not only head knowledge but heart knowledge. You know the difference, right? Head knowledge is what you think someone else told you is right. Heart knowledge is what internally you think this is right. And oftentimes, even as Christians, we know the will of God. We think that's good, and it's just in our heads, but we don't believe it in our hearts. And so it doesn't metamorphosize us inside out, and we keep trying to fly as caterpillars, and it gets so hard. You know, a bunch of years ago, I, I went to the East Coast, New Jersey, um, to speak at a retreat. And um, I, I don't know if you know how New Jersey and New York, New York works, but New Jersey is almost like the suburb of New York. And so it's a different state, but it's close enough where they just commute. And so a lot of the people that I met at the church were actually um, uh, people who have homes in New Jersey but work in New York. And there were some really high-powered people. The, the, the person who picked me up from the airport, I asked him, well, what do you do? Um, work in hedge funds. Um, and and uh, he was a managing partner of a hedge fund. And I, I, I didn't really understand hedge fund, but I, you know, I tried to fake it. Well, you know, what's your portfolio? And he didn't say like thousands or hundred thousands or even millions. He said billions. I... I you know, like, I try to stop acting smart. I didn't know what that meant, that his portfolio that he manages had, you know, billions worth of dollars. Uh, but that's, and I asked him about this work-life um, balance, and him, as well, as well as a few others at his church, uh, um, their commute, their work demands were so hard that they, it was almost impossible to have any midweek anything at the church. I thought that was hard until I, was, I spent some time with the kids at the, at the church. And, you know, I, 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 I bless Catapult here, our youth kids. I know you're under a lot of stress. I know it's a lot of pressure to try to get into, you know, one of the, uh, you know, four-year colleges, one of the UCs or something like that. And I thought we had a tough one. I went over there. It's a, it was a different animal. And maybe it's just a group of kids that, and, and the parents that I met. Um, you see, over there, they don't talk about getting into one of the UCs or the, oh, I wish I could get into the University of New Jersey. But when you're in that area, they talk about the Ivy Leagues. That the goal is you got to get into one of the, the uh, you know, like the difference over there is you got to get into, your goal is one of the three, or if at least one of the ten. Um, Really, beyond that, there's no, like, a, you, you have to go out of state, pay, you know, whatever, whatever. And there's this particular um, prep school that all the parents are trying to get their kids into. And you have to test into it. Highly, highly competitive. And if you graduate from um, uh, that prep school, a high percentage of them end up at an Ivy League. They just coach you in such a way that you can build your portfolio that you'll end up at an Ivy League. And so I remember meeting one of the young high school uh, students there, and she had already felt like a failure, the reason being not because she did, didn't get into an Ivy League, but she didn't get into the prep school while her sibling did. 
so her future was almost set. I was talking to one of the older parents who didn't have any kids there. I was asking them, you know, what their situation was. Well, they um, had two children. I forgot the other, but I, they talked about a son who ended up going to one of the three IVs as an undergrad and going to one of the other two IVs as a grad. And I said, wow, you know, congratulations. But they didn't seem happy at all. And, you know, like, and, he, and they explained to me that uh, their child has left the church, no longer is walking with the Lord. Not only that, even in the words of the child, their adult child, is that that child, that son, has achieved everything that the world says you should achieve at that stage of life, but that child is miserable. See, they had bought into this uh, culture that if you can just achieve this, you'll be happy. Or if you don't, you'll be miserable. They've been conformed to this world and they've been so blinded by that that, uh, that that child as he's growing up, what should have been the will of God for that son, they ignored. I believe if they could talk to their younger selves as parents, they would have said, you know, yeah, study as hard as you can, achieve as much as you can, but, but God's will for you is not just that. There's so much more. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up at this time. What does it mean to renew our minds? I, I believe it is believing that we are totally depraved, that without God that we cannot earn our salvation. I believe it is understanding that we are justified by the propitiation that we're not mired in our guilt of our past failures. I believe it means we understand that the sovereignty of God, that God's goodness will be upon us and we can trust in that. I believe it means that we believe in security that God, hold, God holds on to us even though sometimes uh, our soul screams out in doubt that we test and prove the will of God to the point where it not only is our head knowledge from the book of Romans, but it becomes heart knowledge that's written into who we are and it transforms us inside and out. Can I pray for us? Lord Jesus.